It's it's changed. So exceptional learners is usually kind of the broad stroke we'd say for like students in special education. So then exceptional learners is just anything outside that norm. But you know, what is normal? We're all a little, is anybody really neurotypical? What does that mean? Right? So we're all a little neurodiverse. So neurodiverse is another term. I mean, back in the day, you'd get a degree in mental retardation. A colleague of mine has that degree from the States, which wasn't that long ago, like late nineties, you were getting that degree. And that used to actually be appropriate because it, it's not that there's a disable or a disability. The retardation, like the way an engine retards, it's to slow down, right? In French, it means to be late. And so it, that actually, without that stigma of people using the R word now, as an insult, that actually was a pretty accurate description because it's it was just a slower paced brain that could then catch up. So mental retardation, unfortunately, was a really good term that now we can't use because it, it sounds terrible, like it's become a negative word. So now exceptional learners is is the accepted one. Special education still is pretty accepted. But now kids and the internet, you know, if you're sped, if you're special, it's kind of becoming a derogatory term the way that the R word became, right? So it's maybe exceptional one day will be the new insult. Or, you know, what? isn't that crazy the way we do yeah. that? Words have a lot of power. Oh, yeah, totally. So with these exceptional learners, mm-hmm. who have you seen that has surprised you? Oh, I, I couldn't say one that hasn't like that's the beauty of the profession like there's they're all surprising me in like the best way like you because you get before I ever meet them I get paperwork and nobody's a piece of paper right there's so much more than than that or even if they line up their assessments and their diagnoses and it's like oh yeah I could I've had a student with this diagnosis or I've had a student like this but then you meet them and they're a complex, wonderfully unique individual that brings like so much more to the table than what their previous teacher or their parent or their doctor has told me. So then it's, it's wicked. It's just like, they're all surprised. It's like a kinder egg, you know, <laughs> you think you're just getting the chocolate, but then like, there's a whole cool little unique toy underneath there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how much does style or the way you interact with an exceptional learner play into what is on that piece of paper? I think it's everything. Like I really, I mean, for every teacher is a special educator, truly. Every teacher should be. If you teach your subject, you're probably in the wrong profession. I've always said like, if you're, if you're in it for the subject, that's great. You need, you should have a passion for your subject, but it's the act, the verb of teaching to the students that should be your passion. For special education or, you know, my role, I'm in it for the students. So it's all about relationships, building that relationship. And for lots of teachers, it's that way. But I don't really have the full curriculum or the same like government pressure for a report card that like my subject teaching peers have. If you're teaching calculus 30, there's like certain boxes you have to check to prepare your student for the next step. Whereas, 
mine's so individualized. I'm just preparing that individual student for life as an adult. So it's all about relationships. And the paperwork is there more to support often funding because once you kind of have that piece of paper saying you have a diagnosis, then that opens doors for community associations that will offer funding if you have autism or if you have a learning disability. But in terms of my job, I the paper's there, but that doesn't... So it sounds like that paper actually doesn't matter. Not so much to me. Well, it, for, for the teaching aspect. Yeah, yeah. Like it does, like not to knock the people that actually do those assessments and diagnose those kids. Like we need them because they need a diagnosis to get into my program or to even receive some of my services. So it's important that that happens. And those professionals who have assessed them give great ideas for strategies that would work for them, or they might recommend certain programming that then I follow. But, you know, like I said, then I meet the kid themselves and some of those strategies will work and some won't. And it really becomes more individualized once I, I know them and what they're into and how they learn and how they don't learn what, you know, whether they like me or don't really matters. Like you don't learn from someone you don't like. So I spend the first time, the first part of it, just like getting to know them. It really does boil down to that relationship as you were saying then. Yeah. I think it does for every teacher and parent and person really. Like if you're not, if you don't make a relationship with someone, like what do you have, you know? Yeah. How did you figure this out? Gosh, that's a good question. I'd say trial and error. Sadly, there are students that I haven't connected with. Probably in my early few years of the career, I just realized who was I connecting with or who did I feel like were my success stories and they were the kids I had the good relationships with. I'm thankful I learned it before I was a teacher. So when I would like be a child making friends or babysitting, the, the children I was babysitting would listen to me after I made a connection. And then, so I realized like early on that the connection before correction of, of behavior, that's just kind of like, I think more my personality. So it just, I think I was always a special educator. I just wasn't in the job yet, you know? So you naturally found that it was connection before correction. That makes it simpler then. In theory, it does, as long as I'm not flipping my lid, as long as I've had a good night's sleep or I've had my nutrition, I've dealt with my trauma, I've, you know, unpacked all my baggage. If I haven't, then that's very difficult. So, yeah, I mean, my parenting books that I read and all that kind of stuff really apply to teaching too, because it's, you're just kind of the parent while the parent's not there anyway, in a way. So... Yeah, I've learned a lot that not to be selfish, but self-care isn't selfish. It, it is the foundation from which to build your house. You know, it's, you have to pour from a full cup. So if you don't take care of yourself, you have nothing to give. And so I learned that early on. And that, I think, has helped build those relationships. So then what do you uh, do to fill your cup? Mm. There's lots of different ways. For me personally, I think we've chatted about this before too. It, um, meditation is huge and exercise and getting a good night's sleep. Like I think sleep, sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindfulness are like the four pillars of basic health. So then 
meditation, I think, is the the main thing that I can do that doesn't take so long. And kind of like exercise, you spend a little bit of time doing it in the morning and it gives you that energy through the day. And then you use those muscles and those brain muscles when you're in trouble mentally or when you feel yourself kind of like getting out of control or deregulating. I use that and I try to just stay calm, stay in the present moment all day. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so simple, but not easy. Exactly. And it's, I mean, to compare to physical exercise, which most people have done to the point where they've reaped a benefit. Lots of people haven't tried mindfulness. Like lots of us, we've read about it. We might know that we have to do it just like exercise, but to actually do it is where you reap the benefits. You know, I can read about how healthy yoga or going for a run is, but until I do it, I'm not going to actually reap the benefits. And mindfulness is the same way. Like until you meditate, you don't realize how beneficial it is and it's just I do a little thing in the morning when I'm calm deep breathing say some mantras get like get my zen on and then I'm driving my kid to daycare on the way to work and he's pitching a fit because he didn't get his corn dog for breakfast or something right and then instead of me snapping which probably would have happened I've breathe I figure out I can get back into my present moment and it's kind of like those moments where like you're you're working out you're weightlifting and you maybe don't notice at the gym it's like yeah I'm doing my bicep curls but then later that day your groceries are lighter and you just you don't realize how strong you are until you put it into functional practice and it's kind of the same way with your mind and and your meditation it's just all of a sudden you're just calmer so that meditation practice you found actually enhances your calmness. Totally. Yeah. And especially then at work when you're a mom, like a parent, as you know, like no one's watching you, right? Like when you're at home, everyone's their most authentic self. And that's when the kids unleash. And that's when you could unleash as a parent and no one would see it. You could be your worst self and your kids are still going to love you or, you know, like that's, that's one thing. And I've learned to be calmer at home, which is huge because I don't have to be in the, in the way I do at work, but at work, I've always been more calm because there's a different accountability. They're not my children. I have them less of the time. They're not crawling in with me at 3am like my son and disrupting my sleep. And so there's a, there is a removal. Like I love my students, but I'm not going to flip my lid on them. I, there are teachers, I, like, I'm sure we all know teacher who, who'd yell. I've never been a yelling teacher. I'm a yelling mom, or I used to be more. And that, I've learned to kind of bring that calming energy from teaching into my home. And it's kind of funny, like sometimes I visualize that someone's there, like that there's a public pressure to react as though I'm being watched or something. You are doing that thing where that quote, do everything as if it will all be known. Yeah. I've never heard that, but that's exactly right. Cause it's integrity, right? Is doing the right thing when no one's looking. And I want my children and students to have integrity and they're only going to do that if they know how, if they've seen it. So whatever if they've only seen you or like me, if they've only seen me 
yell and freak out and cry when I'm upset, that's what they're going to do when they're upset. But I I still have like a span of emotions, of course. I'm not like a, you know, monk zombie mom. That's just, but I, when I am upset, there are way healthier things I do. Or if I have to fill my cup, like we said, you know, I will tell my kids that that's what I got to do. Like, you know, I got to call grandma and have a 10 minute talk with her, or I'm going to play some guitar. I'm going to have a bath. I'm going to go get some fresh air. Sometimes they join me and then they are, their mood's better too. But sometimes it's, it's just like, it's important that mommy fills her cup and I use that language with them and then they, they get it. I, I hope. Or they, they will know one day that they're going to have to fill their cup. It's nice you model that behavior then. I try. Yeah. I well, try we're to. all trying. Yeah. Of course, we're going to mess yes. up. Yeah. But yes. When you're doing all of this and you're assessing, how do you know that you're doing it right? A lot of self-reflection, really. You know, like I thank my drive to work because I have a 20-minute window to and from the daycare to, to work that's not in the city anymore. So it's just like either I'm listening to a podcast or I'm listening to nothing at all. And I kind of take a scan of myself physically, my anxiety levels, my, you know, sometimes my heart's racing for no reason. And I'll be like, okay, let's get to the root of this. On the way home, I usually am just like, you know, what went good that day? What, if, would I live this day again? And if so, would I have changed anything? And, and hopefully the answer is no, even the mistakes, because it's like, no, nah, I, you know, I made that mistake, but it's not, just a little error and it's something I'll do better tomorrow. I'm just in a constant state of, I think, reflection and, and trying. And then if I realize there's something at a joint, I pick up a book, I research. In your research, what have you found that has stuck out for you? lots but I'll try to narrow it down so right now I'm reading a great book and it's nothing too new I'm sure I've read the book books like this before positive parenting positive discipline peaceful parents happy kids was a really great book Laura Markham she's amazing I, I do a lot of brain research so I I'm at you see right now in my off time doing a educational neuroscience um, degree topic with supporting mental health and so I love like the brain development and so anything with kind of like psychology brain development mental health research I've found with that and just how how imperative like that is for children there that that critical period of development and what we can do to set them up for life like those are that's usually where my research lies. And so when I'm checking myself and my reflection, it's usually there's a lot of guilt or shame for, oh boy, my kids are already five and seven, you know, is the damage done, so to speak, right? And, and it's not, of course. There's, um, for some children, sadly, there is some damage done. Um, but my own children, it's repair. I can repair. When you yeah. had your students, and you say they all surprise you in the best ways, yeah. What moment stands out to you? There's, there's so many. Like they're just, they're often so funny. 
Like they're so funny. They're so real and so raw that uh, it's just like genuine authenticity, like the best side of human nature because they're not, so many of them haven't been socialized in the same way. And we can thank, uh, you know, autism where for that, that they're, they, they see things a little more black and white and they challenge our societal norms in the way that we'll like, you know, we try to sand off those rough edges of children and say like, that's not acceptable or we shouldn't do that. And you know, it's some are, some are good things. We, there's some things we probably shouldn't do in public, but students with autism will often just ask why a little more, you know, and then it, then it causes me to be like, yeah, why can't you, you know, wear your shirt backwards and jump down the sidewalk to on this field trip? There's no reason why you can't. The only reason you've maybe been told you can't is because of what other people might think or feel about you, but you're not harming anybody by being yourself. And so I, that's what I love about, about them. And the more we have students like doing this all the time in our schools, all these, these other kids who are pressured to conform and buy the latest thing and, and be interested in the latest trend. they're just like, I hope they see a kid doing that and being like, wow, they seem really happy. They're, they're not, they're just themselves and you don't have to be autistic to be yourself. So we can all be a little bit more real. And that's what surprises me is because there's so many different facets of human nature and every new student kind of brings a new way of being genuine that I'm like, oh, I want to be more like that, you know? (laughs) So your students inspire you. Totally. Every day. Yeah. And it's like, I am, it's so cliche, but like I learn way more from them than, than I teach. Like it's just patience and compassion and empathy to name like the big things but then also yeah just like be goofy and be flamboyant be yourself be eccentric and if the world if there's not a place for you in the world then just carve one out the world's a big place and so if you don't fit you know normal society then society can change for you you, it's, there's nothing wrong with you, you know, it's, we're all kind of just these structures of, of this society that is moldable. So you give them the confidence to be themselves. Ideally. That's what I try to do. I try to give them the confidence. When I guess confidence you can't give, right? They, I try to give them the tools they need to, to believe in themselves, to earn their own confidence. And just by, I think, loving and accepting them for who they are is, and then they're just like, cool. Someone's in my corner, hopefully. And I'm not, I don't have to change for this person. So maybe I don't have to change for other people either. Maybe there's a lot of Miss Smiths out there who are just gonna accept me. With the tools that you have to help instill some Mm self-confidence, what are your top three? Depends on the kid, but I think for the most part, um, it's crazy, but like words of affirmation in the mirror or words of affirmation practicing. Um, my one student calls me cringe 
because I, uh, it's pretty cringy, I suppose. Um, but it's just kind of like repeat after me. I am capable. I am beautiful. I am worth, I'm, this is worthwhile. I am worthwhile. Um, I can do hard things. I can learn from this. Failure is necessary for growth. And then they, they'll repeat after me and they, you think you say it enough, you believe it. That usually works. That's beautiful. <laughs> Have you ever met resistance when you ask somebody to do this? Yeah, the one who called me cringe. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, repeat after me. I am beautiful. And she's like, you're so cringe. Like, and then I was just like, I am cringe. I'm going to own it, you know? Um, I've met resistance... We do a practice where I, I ask them, like, what compliments have you received? And some kids just, like, don't have anything to say. Actually, some people. We have, we even, like, you know, talk among the staff, like, just out in the hall or something and be like, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, like, what's a compliment you receive? And some people freeze and they're just, like, they're uncomfortable complimenting themselves. They're, they're giving them away, like Oprah, right? Compliments. But they're... <laughs> They, they're so uncomfortable. And I think even the times, like, I was a very, I lacked confidence a lot as a kid. And I remember, like, my first boyfriend, best friend became boyfriend kind of thing. And when he, he would compliment me. And uh, my reaction, so many reactions, like, no. He's like, oh, you're so, you're so beautiful. No. Like, how many people just say no and deny, like, compliments? Or, like, or they, they make excuses or something. Or they have to explain their way th- you know, that it's not them. It's, there's a circumstance as to why, like, I like your dress. Oh yeah, it was on sale or, oh, it was my sister's. I got it from her. Thanks. Yeah. I just, you know, so and it compliment deflecting. Yes. Right. I, there's this one coworker though, who nailed it on Valentine's day this year. I was walking past her and I said, you look so good today. I know. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you for like, it's, you know, you know, you're not conceited or arrogant. You're just confident. And it's something trying to trying to teach those kids um so then they're learning compliments uh what some of them just have never heard a compliment um enough to believe it so then and that's like all of us but then you start telling it yourself like tell yourself you're beautiful when you're single you don't have to wait for like a partner to tell you that um and that's something that lots of students lots of people don't don't do enough of is just like be their own. Like, yeah. That positive yeah. self-talk. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's those, that's huge. Cause there's a lot of negative self-talk for my students. Cause they've, they've heard a lot of negativity, like a lot of what they can't do, a lot of their limitations. So, um, trying to rewrite that narrative for them. So you rewrite it by saying they can. Yeah. And, and ideally they'll rewrite it themselves by saying they can you know day one you meet somebody who doesn't believe they can do much let's say mm-hmm. after a while when does that moment usually happen when they can mm-hmm. it depends you know i i don't sometimes i never see it i don't like see the fruits of my labor i just if i think if you think about your own life like Teenagehood, there's so much adversity in those developmental, awkward, adolescent years. And you, but you usually have a safety net. 
like lots of kids don't, of course, but the school system, your parents, your mistakes, a lot of the time are caught in this safety net of supportive adults. And so I'm one of those, but then I'm not there after, you know, for the, for the, their whole life, but hopefully they'll, they'll have the tools to like be their own safety net later. And we've all done that where then we make the mistakes of our twenties and we don't have Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so to coach us through it or our parents to bail us out. But if we have the confidence or we have some resilience tactics, then we are okay. So I, it's kind of like a doctor, I guess, like in some ways, no news is good news. If, if they're not reaching out to me in their twenties, I think I've done my job okay. Some do. Some definitely call me again and ask, and it's fine. Of course, it's just like we're, they're still kids. But I do see a gradual piece, the gradual progression of their ability and confidence, of course. But it's not like a light switch necessarily. It's so gradual that because I see them every day, you know, I don't notice when it happens, but it's just all of a sudden I'm less in their lives. And that's good. They need you less as it progresses. Yeah. And it's, and even I have them for four years. So grade nine and 10, they're, they're fairly, uh, they're fairly like mother, mother hen, you know, um, they're with me more of the time. They have probably an EA support They're They're maybe not taking as many classes with other teachers, but then grade 11 and 12, you know, they're working out in the community on their own. They're in more electives. They don't have an EA support. I maybe only see them a couple hours a day and, um, and then they, ideally they just don't need me and that's good. So you see that progress in two years. Yeah. Well, I, you know, four, four years, five years, but yes, two years to be more independent. Yeah. Ideally. Yep. Some, sometimes still, you know, last day of grade 12 we're I'm still helping them over that finish line. (laughs) Um, but for the most part, they've learned so much about who they are and what they can do that, yeah, they don't need me. So the concentrated effort in two years, you have seen more times than not has worked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you don't, I think it's it's not even the two years time period as much as it's adolescence. Like it's just, aside from toddlerhood and like infancy, it is the biggest growth spurt of a human development, brain-wise, body-wise, and then, but then they're also kind of little adults where they learn their interests and they, they figure out, um, the kind of learner they are, the kind of person they want to be. And usually by, you know, doing stuff they shouldn't and they learn, but that, that's kind of like when they're honing kind of the, the people they want to be. And so I think it's just such a special time of life that I'm not really probably doing very much as much compared to what they are doing. Like I'm just facilitating it, but adolescence is going to happen whether I'm there or not. So it's, it's just kind of, I kind of just grab my popcorn and watch, you know, like the, their, their development is, is amazing and they're doing the work. So you have the words of affirmation that they do. Yeah. And then you did said that accepting the compliment. Yeah. And then what's the third one? I think actually, yeah, I didn't even say the third one. Sorry. Um, actually doing the work like depending on what it it is we go out in the community or they volunteer they help they they just succeed 
like that's get some wins. Yes, they to just get some to evidence that yep. they can win. Totally, and some of those wins are definitely teacher driven. Like I go with them to to the store that we're volunteering at, or I help them through you know their math assignment. But they're doing it, and then it's just time passes, and they've just succeeded little bits at a time or big bits, and and then that builds huge confidence because then they're like, yeah, I can, I can do it on my own. Maybe, maybe I don't need you. And so you found support plus a good relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it. Yeah. I think, I think without that, it doesn't work. Like I think it's all relationship and, but not like friends, you know, not this permissive friendly relationship. It's like a mom or not enabling them. I no. I try not to. Yeah. You know, sometimes you kind of have to a bit because you're advocating for them um, to other teachers or to peers. And, and, you know, so I, I'm probably a little more than a typical teacher. Yes. That, you know, that's the special education part is that it's so individualized. You made a great point though, with all teachers should be teaching the same way, whether you're an exceptional learner or not. Yeah. In, in theory, absolutely. And most teachers, I think set out to be that kind of a teacher, the one that kids remember. I don't think anyone gets in the profession just being like, I really love math and I'm just going to like, I love judging kids on how they do math. I think they like children and they want children to learn math, right? So, um, I mean, maybe some do, I don't know. I think, yeah, like everybody is in it for those relationships with kids. The sad reality is that I have a smaller class And I, my job is basically all relationships, whereas, and I have the same kids most of the day. So then if I was a math or English teacher with 40, 30 to 40 different children every hour, and I have a very time oriented curriculum that I have to get through, it's hard sometimes to build individual relationships with, you know, a hundred children plus a day. Like that, you you know, you have them for the, a semester. Yeah, it's How just can not you possible. Spread out that cup for one hour. It, yeah, and and the truth is, like, you can't. It's more. I guess I, I don't know, analogy maybe. Like I am, kind of, like a pet owner, and the other teachers are kind of like cattle ranchers. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? <laughs> but it's you know, not like there's, they're great like. You know, I was from a ranching community, right? And like, man, ranchers take care of their animals. They're amazing. They love them. But they're they're tagged on the ear with a number, right? You don't give your cows a name. But if you have one dog that you have for a long time and that, you know, that you build that relationship and sadly, um, everybody wants to be the pet owner, but at the end of the day, you just have a a whole herd (laughs) to take care of. Right. And so I'm really grateful that I so far with funding am able to give the students a pretty good ratio of, of student to teacher. Um, other teachers don't have that luxury. When was the first time you learned that relationship was top priority? Hmm. I don't know if I could like, you know, peg the date probably more in the last like five years, I've really solidified that that is the key through research and through my classes and just through being a resource teacher. Once I build those relationships, the kids will work. 
or the kids will succeed. Before that, when I was more of a classroom teacher, I believed that that was the way, but I couldn't always have that time. And then, so I, I could, I couldn't do those like personal long, longitudinal studies, you know, to show that like, I bet you this is the way, but I can't ever prove it because I just have, you know, 200 kids. Um, but then once I was fully in special ed and I had, I was like, okay, this, this was the way it should work. But now how does classroom teachers do it? I don't know. Yeah. How did we get away from the relationship versus I'm just going to teach you this, learn it. I don't know. I, I think it's like utilitarian for these like teachers. There's a lot of pressure to like get the job done. And even when like teachers care so much, but they have so much administration work to do. Like they have so much paperwork and they have to do the actual teaching that I feel like they sometimes feel like they're pressed for time. So then they, they do that. They build a relationship kind of as they go, but yeah, I I think it's just kind of tough to make it all work in, in an hour. Yeah. And I suppose while you were doing it before, you kind of knew it worked, but you didn't see it proven yet. Yeah. Like it would, I knew the kids I had a better relationship with in some ways were doing better in my classes, but for the most part, the kids were doing okay. Like I wasn't, you know, seeing a lot of failures or anything, but it was just like judging, judging based on a numerical value of like, did they pass the class? Did they get a, the mark they wanted to go on to their next step? And, and it, um, it was, yeah, it was kind of hard to, to see that. Is it correlation or causation with, you know, I have a relationship with them. They're doing good in the class. Are those related? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I assumed they always were. Uh, and now yeah. it, you realize it's true. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I see amazing colleagues that have found that a way to do it. Like they've, they have like, yeah, 150 kids a day. Well, you know, 120 kids a day and they're building relationships and like their kids are, they like their job and they're just like the kids like being in their class and they're learning. And like, they found this magic balance of, they found a way to flow with it. Yeah, totally. And, and I'm sure like, you know, there are kids that don't connect with that teacher or those teachers hard to connect with that student and then they still pass and it's fine, you know? Um, but yeah, some, some people just create like a classroom environment that's just, so warm and safe and enriching that it just seems like kids succeed in the, in there, you know? Yeah. What have you done in your classroom to make it warm and comfortable or inviting? Um, there's a few kind of tricks of the trade, you know, like the physical environment is, is important. So not just me, but like lots of my colleagues, like the lighting, the lighting is huge. Those terrible flipping school like you know led crap um i have a coworker that put that buys like a light shade cover to make like a blue hue in her classroom instead of these nasty fluorescent things um the the color of like the wallpaper the decor i think um you know classroom posters that are actually like meaningful um something that high school is a little different like an elementary 
when I taught elementary, it was like, make it their space. So having, they see their names, their artwork, it feels like home to them that way. Um, so yeah, there's definitely physical environment stuff, but I think that most of it is kind of the vibe, you know, the, the energy, the welcoming, the smile, the, yeah. Greet them when they come in. Totally. Yeah. Genuinely ask them how they're doing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And like, it's little things, but like saying their name instead of me saying like, Hey, how's it going? Being like, how are you, Tony? And then you're just that much more heard, I think. And then they're like, oh, it's not just this generic, how are you? I'm good. But when you say someone's name, they're more likely, I found, to say how they're actually doing. So you found they're more open when you use their name. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's weird. It's just like something I've realized. And They say it in the books, but you don't do it. Yeah. So it's not proven to you. Yeah. And you do it. Yeah. And so it just works. like works. And, and I mean, if I had, you know, 40 kids coming through the door in, in that hour, I, you might not get to all of them that day, but you know, you could, I would, I used to have like a game I'd play with my, in my brain when I had a big class and it was that I had to hear every student speak every day. And it wasn't like I'd ask them to talk in front of the class or anything, but I like made sure that when I was like walking around monitoring their work, I like spoke and heard every student's voice. Cause I think there's kids that probably like just go all day without talking. So something small yeah. you found actually added up. Yeah. Cause then it was just nice to hear their voices and have them like part of the community, part of the learning community. When you were talking about community, you say you take your students out into the community. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the, the challenges? Oh, it's so fun, Tony. Oh my gosh, it's fun. They, uh, they're so great. So, I mean, we're new at in this program. I mean, I've taken students out in different cities and different communities, and um, we, you know, we go grocery shopping. We, uh, we, in in school, we do volunteer. We run our coffee business, and and they they learn small talk with the staff, and they say funny things as they're learning to make small talk with customers and, and, uh, and then we, you know, go, yeah, we go grocery shopping. We're going to go bowling tomorrow. That's going to be a riot. I think it's really loud. And so I think with the sensory issues, we might need a lot of headphones, but we, we volunteered yesterday at a senior center helping out with recycling. And it's just kind of funny to displace people like, you know, myself included, like put us in a new environment and just see how we do. Because we're just such creatures of habit. I mean, they're safe, of course. And if they feel anxious, we ground them. And not in a bad, not ground, you know, like we do grounding exercises to ease their anxiety. Not like you're grounded. Um, But yeah, like it's usually um, the students that tend to be like having to stim, to stimulate uh, that would be more obviously neuro divergent in as people kind of see them so they might be running or bouncing or or jumping or humming or arm hand or arm flaps sometimes and so I think it's really healthy for people to see this happen in a grocery store and for like young children to see this and not 
not be scared or think that that's weird. Just to understand the reasoning behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, like some students will have, you know, quite a severe stutter. So as they're trying to communicate with a new person, um, just to see like that Starbucks barista patiently wait for the stuttering student to order, it's more of a lesson for the barista than it is for my student to learn how to order coffee. Like it's, I, I hope that taking students out into the community, that the community starts embracing that inclusivity of we're all humans and we're all different and weird or different does not equal wrong. And that's like, we have strengths in our differences and everyone has something to offer. So it's, yeah, it's, it's can be very funny. Um, to kind of watch these interactions, <laughs> but uh, pretty heartwarming, really, oh. yeah. Well, what you said about one of your students who just doesn't care. Doesn't care, yeah. That's the way we should be doing it. <laughs> yeah. As long as we're being safe with everybody. Yeah. What does it matter? Exactly. Like, if you're not harming, I think it's, like, probably some Dalai Lama quote I heard, but it was, like, if you, you should always help people. And if you can't help them, at least don't harm them. And that's just like the rule of life. That's if we all did that, it's like, we'd be pretty good if we all did that. We'd be great. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, right. Mother Teresa's world peace solution is go home and love your family. (laughs) Well, if we all just loved our family and didn't harm each other and tried to help done. Like it, it's that's, just, that's so simple. It should be, right? Like, simple doesn't always equate to easy sometimes. No, it all doesn't. All that pressure. But like who's putting the pressure on, you know? Like, we trick ourselves. Yeah, we do. Like, And it's, it's just nuts. Like, I guess life is a little more complicated and there's all the whatever. But <laughs> in my classroom, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Well, what you said about you filling your cup and it makes you better, that's kind of the same as go home and love your family. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if, yeah, if you just kind of are giving those, your family, your children, like a safe connected environment where they have a appropriate attachment to their caregiver. And then they take that into the world. And they're those, the type of adults that do that. Like it should be a cycle that just continues. They'll be better parents and people. And it's, I mean, it should just work out, but humans gonna human. What's the top lesson you've learned from your students? Oh, <laughs> it's so cliche. I It would be like to like be authentic, to be yourself, like just unapologetically yourself uh, as long as you're not harming others, you know. They kind of have this like moral or ethical, you know, conscious that it's surprisingly unwavering. They're just like, you know, things are black and white and there's right and wrong. And and they're, you know, culturally in this culture, right and wrong. And they're like, they, uh, then they just, then they just be themselves within that. So it's, yeah, I think we can all be a little bit more ourselves. That's exactly what I took from this conversation. Yeah, that's awesome. Just that they are okay with it. Yeah. It's weird that you say it's cliche, but we don't do enough of it. Really? Oh, maybe it's cliche in my like, in the education world, or maybe in just like, 
my my personal like spec ed thing is kind of this be yourself be authentic so I hear it a lot because I'm I guess I'm trying to like promote it a lot so maybe you're right maybe it's not even cliche out in the we need to hear a little more of it yeah be confident in who you are yeah and try the best that you can yeah yeah it's crazy that lots of us don't we got a lot <laughs> a lot to learn from from my exceptional learners hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent what practices do you plan to put in place for the next few years from what you've learned? I would love to do more, more like mindfulness and exercise, like intentional practices with the students that they can then do on their own. Like I, I think we, it's not really in the curriculum. So it's something I have to just do in English class in math class, you know, but I think like really giving them, those kind of skills to resiliency tactics, whether that's some sort of like an escape, a healthy self-care, music, exercise. Helping them establish a routine. Yeah, finding a healthy hobby. It's kind of crazy that like lots of lots of kids don't have a healthy hobby. And so I'd like to expose them to a, to a few different things that they maybe wouldn't see in their home or the school. Like when we go out in the community, like, Maybe one of them just like loves bowling so much that like that's what they're going to do to stay happy, you know, as an adult or so, you know, like just trying to give them exposure. How did you stumble upon wanting to do this? I, I don't know. Part of me it just doesn't want to be in the school that much either. <laughs> you know, like we, it can only teach so many like life skills in the four walls of a classroom. So that, you you got to yeah. get out in the world to yeah. teach the real thing. Yeah. Like how am I supposed to teach how to order at a restaurant if we're not at the restaurant, you know? So, um, talking to strangers, having that confidence to like go up to the theater attendant and get a ticket or order popcorn. Um, we can practice it till we're blue in the face, like at, in, uh, in the classroom, but they know me. So, and they know each other. So like, you can't role play communicating with strangers. And so I, yeah, they have to be out there and they have to be exposed to it. You can't be drilling all day. Yeah. You have to put it into that game. Or yeah, like, ah. totally. Yeah. That and then and then just like lots of kids have just never done things and myself included, like some, we just don't take our kids as much to as many places. And so and some of our students, especially there's like socioeconomic things or maybe they're, um, yeah, so they, they, their families, their schedule, their work schedule, they've never gone to the library. They've never gone, you know, to the arcade. Um, so they don't even maybe know where that is or how you would go there. Um, so I think it's good that they figure out, you know, what can I do for fun that's not drugs? <laughs> <laughs> and you're giving them that real world practical skill. Yeah, yeah. Because we, you know, riding the bus and um, like right now I'm driving them because I have a pretty low population and we, and we have a couple other adults to drive them. But you know, we'll, we ride the bus places and like learning city transit is, is one of our life skills. It's pretty important. That's how they get to school as well. That's huge. What skills are top priority for you to give to, to instill in the, the kids? Hmm. I think like the the confidence to take risks is like kind of, you know, your the broad stroke of, of just like, like making mistakes and bouncing back 
kind of being resilient, but then like really practical things like how do you get to work on time? How do you read a schedule? And then like once you work and you get paid, how, what do you do with that money? You know, like budgeting and money math is, and consumer math is a huge part of the curriculum for me and for them. Like they, it's important because there's just, yeah, they, there's not really a concept of it right now in their head until they get paid. Budgeting is like a huge life skill. These skills you're saying are not just for exceptional learners. No, they're not. No, not at all. Yeah, like like we teach laundry and cooking and work experience and budgeting when every teenager should be in the, these should be the classes that you have to take like my my major being home ec I I would teach all of these subjects to students that chose to take my class uh why it's an elective is beyond me like everybody has to take up to like you know five English classes in their high school career and they have to everyone has to write a five paragraph essay or a, you know, a problem solution essay, but you don't have to take food studies or you don't have to take accounting or life transitions, which is like, but everyone has to do it as an adult. So it doesn't, it doesn't align. Like we're not really, yeah. I don't know if it, you're teaching these kids actual skills that many not exceptional learners would love to learn. Yeah. And I guess I don't know if it's, if it's assumed that this would fall on the home, like that your adulting skills would be taught by the parents. Um, we know that doesn't happen, you know? And so it's, it's kind of a weird game because when it doesn't happen, you know, when you have a 25 year old that is terrible with money and can't change a car tire and, you know, just doesn't know how to like manage, the parents blame the teacher and the teachers blame the parents, you know, cause, and who's right. You know, like they were in the education system, but that's not part of the education system. So it, it's more part of the home, but sometimes parents, you know, like they just assume that, well, my kid's learning everything they need to know at school. And then they don't, you know, that's not the correct assumption. Yeah. I don't think so. I wish it was like, if we had a, an an appropriate education system like in theory the education system would prepare us for adulthood (laughs) not just like you know university or whatever so it's actually quite it's a it's a mutual relationship the parents and the teachers Mm -hmm. it should be yeah like a team for sure and and like the student should drive that sometimes you know you don't know what you don't know though like a a 16 year old kid's not going to necessarily come up to us and say like i'm going to need to know how to change my oil can you teach me that and if they say a teacher, then the teacher's like, yeah, take the mechanics class of Walter Murray. And the parent would say like, yeah, come to the garage on Saturday. I'll teach you how to change the oil. But if the, if that conversation ever happens, then the, the dad thinks he's learning it, you know, at school and the teacher thinks the mom or dad's teaching him at home. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. It's just that proper budget laundry. Yeah. How to go grocery shopping. Yeah. Meal planning grocery shopping, cooking. And you're teaching all of these. Yeah. With that, throughout the four years, well, and they will take like a food studies class or they go to phys ed and learn wellness and any electives they can take, they, they do. This class sounds so appealing. <laughs> it's a great class. You want to, you want to come take the, you want to come to all dead, Tony? <laughs> well, to learn some of those skills yeah. is, it, in a systematic approach. Yeah. Is 
pretty huge. It is actually. Yeah, it's 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 pretty great. Like I I love that the program exists. I do think it should be for everybody. <laughs> there should be yeah. So before you got into teaching these exceptional learners, what myths or misconceptions were expelled the moment you started? Oh, that's a good question. The fixed mindset, the that we are just the whole fixed, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. You, yeah. So fixed mindsets like you're, you're born with an inherent set of uh, ability and traits. And so it's, that's how we, that's what you can do. It's kind of like, you know, the hand you're dealt and you get to play it. Um, which is how a lot of people are, they still have like a, they believe that sadly about themselves and about others. Um, and then failure is inevitable and detrimental. Whereas the growth mindset is that we, we can change, we can grow and we can develop. And that failure is a catalyst for improvement and that we can learn beyond, uh, what we already know, which it seems like straightforward, but it's, it's like your, it's your Michael Jordan kind of analogy, right? Like the kid who gets cut from basketball and wasn't, you know, very good. And he's like, I just suck at basketball. Like I'm not a basketball player. That's like your fixed mindset. Whereas then your growth one is like, well, I can just practice and practice and practice and become like the greatest basketball player in the world. Um, maybe we can't all be Michael Jordans, but like that's if without that mindset, uh, we could never grow. And so that's huge. That's changed so much because we used to institutionalize our exceptional learners. We used to like hide them from society. And we used to think that like, oh, there's so much shame if your child is born different. What is different? You know, whatever you def- your culture would define as different. In some cases, that would all oh, that that's female. Maybe female was the shame or, you know, let alone with a a physical disability or something right so then you would they would just believe that like they could offer nothing to society and we could learn nothing from them so then I mean that's that's really only changed in like the last not even 100 years right like it was like the like my parents growing up in like the 60s and 70s didn't have a lot of special learners in their school they were still institutionalized or, or put you know, into different schools. And so there was no exposure. So that has been the biggest change, like that it's all inclusion. Like we all have, know somebody who's different, you know, quote unquote different. Who isn't different. Right. And that's what we've learned. We were like, Hey, we're actually, we're all a little bit on the autism spectrum or we're all like, there is no neurotypical. What does a neurotypical brain look like? We all have experiences that shape the brain differently and we all have something to learn from each other and we're so much better for it by seeing our differences as strengths and not weaknesses and not trying to like have this cookie cutter image of what the human is supposed to be and then like trying to fit everybody into that. Yeah. Well, it only works if there's one way to win, but there's many ways to win. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's like, there's a lot of paths to the summit sort of thing. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. or you can just take the gondola. Like, <laughs> you know? yeah, there's a, and the more we develop as humans and we build these technologies, 
uh, and we learn about the brain and we learn we're just finding so many different ways that we can interact and live together harmoniously so um, the misconception yeah. you first had was my exceptional learners are fixed right now yeah yeah and i i don't know if i at some point in my life i'm sure i i thought that i thought that well, like when i was a child and i saw somebody that looked different it's like oh yeah that they're different and I'm normal, you know, that this us and them, that's totally been like debunked for me personally. And I think like, thankfully in the education world for the, you know, it's, it's been debunked. And then now it'll bleed into society because the teenagers we're raising are becoming accepting, inclusive adults who are like, oh yeah, I, you know, had so-and-so in my class and now I work with so-and-so and like, we're just humans, right? Yeah. We so, build the yeah. relationship early, yeah. understand yeah. that everybody's different. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that misconception that we, that there is an us and then, and a them. And, uh, that's a big answer. <laughs> yeah. It was a big question. But <laughs> I, I think that's still people's misconception unless they're in the thick of it, you know, like lots of people who maybe don't have an everyday exposure to somebody who's exceptional. They still maybe yeah. have that to learn. Well, just that thing you said about the waving hands or the, just yeah. to stim because that, yeah, they just have if, to regulate. Yeah. yeah, if you don't know what's happening, mm-hmm. you might be a little put off by that. But right. once you understand what's happening, it's, well, of course. Yeah. If my yeah. nose is itchy, I'm going to freaking scratch it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> they just have a very itchy nose. <laughs> they, yeah. well, it makes and, sense, And they though. scratch it in a, quite an interesting way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That's big. All right, should we call it? Sure.